Возлюбленный Богом Церковь, начиная наше богослужение пред Господом, встанем, пожалуйста, и утвердим обетование, относящееся к преддверию нашей надежды. Да воцарится воскресение Христова в наших телах. Склоним наши головы в молитве. Дорогой Небесный Отец, во имя Иисуса Христа, мы благодарны имени Твоему Святому за вновь представленную привилегию быть на месте всем, которое очертила десница Твоя для поклонения Святому имени Твоему. И ныне позволь наследию Твоему во имя крови завета подняться на вершины для нас недосягаемые и сокрушить всякое бремя и запинающий нас грех. Да будут прокляты в этом служении, как и прежде, все дела дьявола, болезни, нищета, преждевременная смерть, демоническая зависимость, всевозможные страхи, депрессии, разрушение, косность, невежество, все это да отступит от шатров святого народа Твоего. И ныне встань, Господи, на место покоя Твоего Ты и ковчег могущества Твоего, и да облекутся святые Твои спасением Твоим, и да возрадуются пред лицом Твоим. Дай нам больше от Духа Твоего, пропитай нас Духом Твоим святым, позволь нам найти светлое лицо Твое. Я представляю это служение в Твои божественные руки, виде Его рукою превознесенную, великий Бог, Отец и Дух Святой. Аминь. Да благословит вас Господь, можете садиться. твою жало О, ад, где победа твоя эхом с голгопы звучало свершилась содрогнула земля как бог мог смотреть на страдания что сын принимал на кресте, А метода вдруг солнца сияние, И тьма отцарилась везде. Он воскрес, он воскрес, Аллилуйя!
умер в гробнице лежала два дня, а на третий воскрес. Явился своим утверждая, я жив, я жив, я воскрес. Прошло так уж много столетий. The book of Proverbs, chapter 21, verse 20. There is desirable treasure, desirable, and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man squanders it. According to this proverb, a wise person, as well as a foolish person, have one and the same treasure and oil. The difference is that the wise person cherishes his treasure and finds in it joy. But the foolish wastes this treasure because he doesn't know its true price or its true worth. So foolishness is always in the fact that a person doesn't know he's foolish. Some people might ask, what is foolishness? It's the lack of knowledge of the subject that is given to you in order to inherit eternal life. And if you don't know this subject, this discipline, this truth, then scripture calls this kind of a person foolish. How do you want to inherit the kingdom of heaven without knowing or what to do in order to inherit it? And then scripture calls this kind of a person foolish. He has come to God, he has accepted salvation, and he thinks that he's going to inherit eternal life. If he thinks that he's going to inherit because he's going to do something, he truly needs to do something, but he's not going to know what to do. And if he starts to do something that he should not be doing, he is foolish. Yes, the kingdom of heaven is taken, um, is taken by force, but what should we apply force to? 
And here it does say that the kingdom of heaven is a desired treasure and oil. This is referring to the kingdom of heaven. And a wise person cherishes it. It is found in it. The kingdom of heaven is in you. The foolish person, he also has it in him. He has accepted salvation. But he wastes it because he doesn't know what's necessary to do for him to inherit the kingdom of heaven. How to make firm his calling and his election so that a free entrance can be open to the kingdom of heaven. They don't know what election is, what a calling is. They don't understand that they have received salvation in the format of a deposit, that they have to save their souls. Despite the fact that they are saved, their souls are in the state of death. And in their death lives the old man, and their body is decaying from this because there is death there, there is decay. For some reason, they've been told that everything is fine and we are already saved. Therefore, they begin to proclaim promises that are not in their heart. And most importantly, they don't even understand them, their meanings or what they must do to obtain them. And I shall repeat again, the treasure in this, in this parable is the treasure where there is um, extra grains gathered, which is referring to imperishable riches, or rather the kingdom of heaven. And oil is anointing in the sub subject of authority over our treasure. Because if there's no oil, there's no anointing, you're not going to be able to have dominion over that which is in your heart. You accept the truth, the reigning teaching of Jesus Christ, right? But if the Holy Spirit does not enter there as the Lord and ruler of our life, and He alone is a part of this anointing oil, he cannot reveal to us the meaning of this truth. And if this truth will not be revealed to us, then we are going to simply be foolish. Because wisdom is that a person cherishes Cherishes the, the treasure. And the house of the wise and the foolish is the combination of these of these definitions. Pasture, tent, and dwelling. All of these definitions talk about the pasture for sheep and the place of their, of their rest, which is referring to the place and food for our pure thinking. So, pasture, our thoughts are these sheep, and sheep must have their, uh, their place where they, where they dwell, where they can pasture where they're going to eat. The thoughts of a person constantly require food. If this food is not present, who knows what can happen? Furthermore, the desire of the wise is so that his imperishable treasure satisfies his hunger and the hunger and thirst of his inmost man. And in this he finds satisfaction. He doesn't live according to the realities of this world. He has died to the realities of this world. And he, it doesn't matter now whether or not he is poor or rich, whether or not he is cold or hungry. He has something so special that he is magnified. Uh, he um, does not depend on all of these other things. 
состоит в том, что он находит свое удовольствие в богатстве Pleased in, but the foolish wits. Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. Let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. On the foundation of this place of Scripture and other places that support this place of Scripture, the foolish says that, thinks that if you sow money, you will reap money. This you can find in many churches where the leaders are those who are workers of Mammon, who call themselves workers of the Lord. Because in fact, in this place of Scripture, what men sows he will reap is not referring to the seed and the equivalent of money, but to the soil and the equivalent of our relationship toward money. Because depending on our relationship toward money, they could be either the root of all evil or the root of all good. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 8-10, through 10, Apostle writes, Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith and the greatness. So the root, the root of all kinds of evil is love of money, which for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. First Timothy 6, 8-10. So a wise person in the law of um, reaping and sowing, he sees this principle. Whatever soil you sow in, that... Uh, that you will reap. So if you uh, sow in the Spirit, then you will reap immortality. The treasure that this is referring to exists only so that through it we can obtain dominion over money so that we can sow them into the Spirit. As soon as we receive the thought that having sown money, we will reap money, we already end up in the authority of the demonic prince of Mammon and serve not God, the demonic prince Mammon whom the whole world serves they think that everything can be purchased with money that the kingdom of God can be purchased with money but that's not possible but a person a person also can try to do gain God's favor with his money. He says, I sacrifice, I do this, I do that. But God doesn't need this. He says, give me your heart. Why are you giving me money? Give me your heart. 
Everything comes from the heart. God fights for the heart of a person, but man wants his flesh to be in, in comfortable, in comfortable uh, situations, and he tries to use spiritual principles so that he can gain this money, so that he can satisfy his earthly desires. Because I repeat again that healing, what does it relate to? To eternal life? It can't relate to eternal life because eternal life is not relating to healthier you are not, how much do you earn or not. It's not related to this. It's related to your relationship toward money. The relationship toward money is a relationship toward God. God looks at how you are dealing with the gifts He gives you, whether this be a gift of money or a gift of the Holy Spirit, because gifts of the Holy Spirit are also gifts. Gifts of money are also gifts. God isn't against money. When the apostles or the disciples were afraid, they said, it's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. But he says, no, children, it is those who rely on these riches because riches themselves have been created by God. God isn't against riches. And he's going to give to each of us that much that is going to be how much is going to be necessary to inherit the kingdom of heaven. For some he has prepared one way, for others another way. Let's not envy one another. Why did God give to that person more and to me less? There's people who constantly look at one another and they say, how can you how are you able to earn so much money? Show me. But that person who earns a lot of money, when you come to him, and in order to earn a lot, you must place some kind of, have some kind of capital, but you don't have this kind of capital. You want to quickly earn money. God, but God is a worker. He's a laborer. Everything begins from the seed. There is... There is sowing, sown in tears, and the one who works on the field waits for this rain. He acts correctly, and then God gives the rains in the correct time, and this is very important. But when the rains are, do not come in the correct time, you might say, yes, take a look at what happens in the religious the religious churches. Their spiritual rain is not given to them in time. Because the latter rain is given for the nurturing of the fruit and not for sowing. But they use this rain to sow instead of using it to nurture the fruit. But the fruit that must be nurtured and that must already um, be evident is the promise relating to the door of our hope. We must believe in this, in this fruit and the adoption of our bodies in the dimension of time. If this doesn't occur, then people use this kind of rain incorrectly. And as I have said, and I sometimes use um, a, a poem from one famous poet, he talks about an apple that comes out or an apple that... Imagine when there is a warm autumn. The leaves have fallen the trees and there is a warm autumn and there is the beginning of of winter and then the winter hits and everything perishes and he says why oh apple have you come out in the incorrect time i would like to focus this to those people who try to uh, 
wait for something. God is preparing his people for his rapture. To prepare his people for a rapture, he needs to adopt their bodies with the redemption of Christ to give them this promise so that they can accept it, so that they could nurture in it, so that they could proclaim the inexistent as existent. But they, in this time, they proclaim their healing, the gifts of the Holy Spirit more people for them the more people that they have is a sign that God is on their side they consider fire on the altar that the more fire there is that the more quantity of people they have these are foolish people and they are, they are stiff and they are wasting the kingdom of heaven that they are given in the format of a seed they waste it they have buried it they don't place it into circulation they think that they already have it they have a fruit. No, they have a deposit that must be placed into circulation so that they can obtain it as their belonging. And the main commandment upon which all the commandments are built is the commandment, honor God with tithes and offerings. From this begins ministry to God. If you want to turn to me, Israel, turn to me. You will say, how shall we turn to you? Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that my home may have food. And all in this test me, says the Lord of hosts, Shall I not open for you the heavenly windows and pour out rain upon you of blessings? And blessed will you be called by all the nations because you are going to be a desired land, says the Lord of hosts. You are going to be envied. They're going to want to be just like you. They're going to come and say, give us your oil. How were you able to obtain this? But you're going to say, go to those who sell it and purchase it. Right now we are going to honor God with tithes and offerings. Let us stand and let's sing together and honor God in tithes and offerings. And let us understand that each time we honor God with tithes and offerings, we acknowledge His authority over us and we express our love toward Him. This is an opportunity for us to express our love. If a person says, I love the Lord, but at the same time thinks that tithes are a part of the Old Testament, he is a liar. He loves money. And therefore, let us sing together. And I will gladly remind you that each time when Israel had honored God in tithes and offerings, either in the tabernacle of Moses or in the temple of Solomon, he was called to, they were called to, according to the words of Moses which he had received as a revelation from God, to proclaim before him one unique proclamation that they were faithful to for thousands of years. We, being that same Israel, tied to the same root, drinking from the same olive tree, will do the same thing. Please raise your right hands, a symbol of your righteous act, and pray along with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I have separated the tithes from my home and brought them into your home so that your home may have food. I do not give impurely. I do not give in sorrow. I do not give for the dead. I rejoice that I have the privilege to express my love and to acknowledge your authority. And according to your word, I ask you, right now, may your heavenly windows be opened and may your blessings come down abundantly upon your redeemed nation.
In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you. You may be seated.
So, those who have a Bible, you can open along with me to a familiar place of Scripture to us, because 
It is, has recently been the topic of our sermons, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where the good way is, and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. Return to the ancient path of goodness. And so, as far as we know, to find the old way of good is to apply our energy in entering the kingdom of heaven through narrow gates. In Scripture, narrow gates are defined by the reigning teaching of Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh. The reigning teaching of Christ is the bond of the ancient truths that flow from one another, verify the authenticity of one another, and can be acknowledged through discipleship by hearing the preached word about the kingdom of heaven and its powers, thanks to the good soil of the heart. Only thanks, again, to the good soil of the heart. The essence of the kingdom of heaven, which Christ called the gospel of the kingdom, in the reigning teaching of Christ, is defined by such an earthly criteria and virtues, such as righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 14, verse 17. Talking about these three virtues that are the weapon of light and are called to yield the nature of the kingdom of heaven in a person, we must note that this place of scripture is not talking about gaining these virtues of light, but of their demonstration which points to the fact that in order to proclaim the kingdom of heaven as the power of divine light in the subject of these three virtues, for which there are no analogs in any dictionary of the world, it must first be discovered. And the kingdom of heaven as the old way of good should be sought in the fruit of righteousness, peace, and joy, which abide only in the depths of the Holy Spirit. And as we've previously noted, not many are able to find the old way of good as a narrow gate in the reigning teaching of Christ. According to Christ, many can't find the narrow gates in the reigning teaching of Christ due to their stiffness, stiffness and ignorance. Because if they were to find it, they would revile it and consider it a heretical delusion, causing them to inherit eternal perdition. But those who humble their hearts before God and become His disciples in order to enter through the narrow gates expressed in the reigning teaching of Jesus Christ will inherit eternal life. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. And we're not talking about the world that doesn't know God, but we are talking about those people who have come to God and who know God. Therefore, many of those people who fill all kinds of churches, prayer homes, however these places may be called, all Christian denominations and so forth, this is referring to them, that many of them walk along the wide path. These aren't my words, this isn't my definition. This is... These are the words of Christ himself. 
And he continues to say, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. In Scripture, narrow gates and the dignity of the kingdom of heaven are presented in many images of laws and parables. According to this image, narrow gates and the virtue of the kingdom of heaven are righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And as paradoxical as may sound, wide gates that many go in by is also righteousness, peace, and joy. The cardinal difference is that those who enter by the narrow gate can see these properties in the Holy Spirit thanks to his revelation in their heart through their hearing and submission to the preached word about the kingdom of heaven. Whereas those who enter by the wide gate define these virtues as something that is independent of the Holy Spirit and outside of the Holy Spirit thanks to the power of their own mind and the false interpretations of those teachers whom they chose for the because of which the interpretation itself about the understanding of the kingdom of heaven yielding the freedom of Christ in a person is lost from one individual mind to another. And therefore, wide gates as a faith teaching that is based on scripture is the mark of the beast that outwardly does not look different than the seal of God that defines the narrow gate in the dignity of the commanding teaching of Christ as it is written having a form of godliness but denying its power and from such people turn away 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 5 pay attention here having a form of godliness meaning they do the same thing but they don't have the inner contents of this power. All that they have is based on their intellect and their interpretations of those people whom they have chosen for themselves and not those whom God has, whom God has placed before them. We turn to the words of Apostle Paul as the foundation of our study, who, according to the mercy and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was able to, in short definition, sum up the contents of the order that is present in the doctrine of Christ. This is an image of the four rivers flowing from Eden for the nourishment of the garden, which was a prototype of the four fundamental and reigning teachings of Christ, each of which contains the triplicity of various functions, which total to twelve. The number twelve is an image of twelve hours in a day, which yields the order of the kingdom of heaven in the twelve gates of the new Jerusalem and the twelve foundations of the walls of new Jerusalem. Hebrews chapter 6 verses 1 through 2 states the following. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works in a faith toward God, the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. When studying the doctrine of baptisms, we've noted that it is one in the sense that all three baptisms immerse us in the death of the Lord Jesus, but perform different functions. As written, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. All three baptisms pursue the goal of us walking in newness of life. 
Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Water baptism, which we are immersed in the death of Christ, is called to separate us from the world and serve before God as a seal of righteousness, which we had before baptism or which we should have had before baptism, before we make with God the kind of a covenant. Romans 4.11 says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Baptism in the Holy Spirit, in which we are immersed in the Holy Spirit, is called to, through the death of the Lord Jesus, separate us from the vain life of our fathers. The Holy Spirit himself in this baptism is called to be the seal and guarantee of our inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the Holy Spirit revealed, or was revealed to us as a seal in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, continuing, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Baptism in fire, in which we are immersed in the Father, is called to, through the death of Jesus Christ, separate the old man from the new one and lead us into the category of kings and priests. Luke chapter 22, verses 28 through 30. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The powers that are contained in the functions of all three baptisms could clothe us with the authority of all three baptisms only through, through our conscious collaboration with the fullness of the reigning teaching of Christ and with the Holy Spirit simultaneous. Apart from the main purpose of each of the three baptisms, each baptism also pursues different purposes that do not work without one another because they are dependent on one another and verify the authenticity of one another. In a certain format, as much as God and the level of our faith have allowed us, we have already studied the doctrine of water baptism and the doctrine of baptism in the Holy Spirit, and therefore let us turn our attention to studying the doctrine of baptism in fire, which lay as a foundation of the wall of New Jerusalem comprised of the third precious stone, Chalcedony. It is, again, the third foundation. Foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones, the third Chalcedony. Revelation chapter 21, verse 19. Luke 3.16 says, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So three levels of baptism, baptism in water, Holy Spirit, fire. The fire and the flickering of the precious and mystery stone of Chalcedony, which defines the atmosphere of the third foundation and the wall of the new Jerusalem, which we will explore, is the revelation of the Heavenly Father, in which he reveals himself in the name fire. As we will see further, the dignity of this theme creates an atmosphere where the Heavenly Father favors to dwell. When John the Baptist spoke about baptism in fire, he was referring to not just the function of baptism, but also fire itself that we must be clothed in, just as in the previous baptisms we were clothed in Christ and the Holy Spirit. 
And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. In this piece of scripture, Jesus urged his disciples to teach the ancient path of goodness to the redeemed of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. This ancient path of goodness, which yields the teaching about the kingdom of heaven, in which the redeemed of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, through the three baptisms in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, could be immersed and clothed into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The reason why in this place of scripture, baptism in fire that is called to immerse and clothe us in the Heavenly Father comes first. Water baptism, immersing and clothing us in Christ comes second, and baptism which immerses and clothes us in the Holy Spirit comes third, is because this place of scripture does not present the functional order of the sequence of the baptisms, but rather the hierarchical order of the sequence of the names of God at the head of which stands the name of the Heavenly Father, from who, in fact, all three types of baptisms are called to proceed, act, and be performed. Speaking of baptism in fire, which... So, when we're talking about functional order, we're going to we're going to look at water, Holy Spirit, and fire. When we're talking about the hierarchical order but of the names in the name of who are we baptizing into, we're going to see the name of the Father, the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. Speaking of baptism in fire, which, like baptism in the Holy Spirit, was called to descend onto earth from the heavens, Jesus said, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Luke chapter 12, verse 49. Christ's goal was not just to bring the Holy Spirit upon the earth, but fire. And he passionately desired, he said, I, I am bound, I am limited from this until the fire is on the earth. However, Christ knew fully well that the descent of the Holy Spirit as well as the descent of fire could be brought on earth only after his sacrificial death for his church and his resurrection in which his church would be justified before the Father. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 says, Who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. In other words, all three types of baptisms are the imperishable inheritance prepared for the people for whom God imputed righteousness not by works but by their faith in his words. And this kind of faith in his words is comprised of knowing who God is for us in Christ Jesus and what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And to have faith or believe means to call those things which do not exist as though they did, just like Abraham had done, Abraham, whom God had made the father of many nations. It is written of him, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world or peace was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead, and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. 
Based on this fateful principle, we do not have the right to arbitrarily, at our own discretion and based on our own opinion, cause those things which do not exist as though they did. Doing so, we reject and thus replace the power and commandments of God with our own power and commands. Such behavior is seen by scripture as idolatry. When a person on his own begins to call inexistent as as though it did, because by proclaiming that which God did not command us to proclaim, we take the place of God and we try, therefore, to impersonate God. We are called to call those things which do not exist as though they did, only when the things which do not exist is the command of God that relates to the imperishable inheritance and calling in Christ Jesus. Let us remember this. We can call the inexistent as though they did only when this relates to the imperishable inheritance in Christ and not to material goods. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away. Undefiled means not on earth, because whatever is on earth is defiled. Continuing, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5. We are born from the imperishable seed of the Word of God. Because of this, our true inheritance that we must revolve around and fo focus our imaginative thinking on are those valuables that are in the dimension of incorruption and have nothing in common with the material valuables that are in the dimension of decay. And so, all three baptisms and in part, baptism in fire, contain those powers that are called to separate us from what is earthly and corrupt and attach us to what is heavenly and imperishable. Until I was completely enlightened about what exactly consists of our inheritance and our calling, desired to become a mark on our foreheads, separated us from the wicked family, I admire the testimonies that certain religious leaders shared about how through their imaginative thinking and focus on material things that they thought were necessary, they became pregnant with these material things and then received them. But when I realized that the hope of our calling lies in an imperishable inheritance, my admiration of the ideas of these people grew into complete rejection. These ideas, according to Christ, are thorns drowning and killing the seed of the kingdom of heaven and man. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and that the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Mark chapter 4, verses 18 through 19. In his time, Jesus as a son of man was tested by these ideas when he wanted to make him an earthly king. And when the devil, for worship, offered him all the glories of the world which consisted of and were determined by perishable values, Jesus, without a moment's doubt, rejected all these proposals.
proposals with the words, Depart from me, Satan. For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. People who use the meditation of imaginative thinking to possess material values are worshippers of Satan, whom they call their own Christ. Do you remember one, one leader was impregnated with a table and a bike. And before, previously, that's that's what I thought that faith was all about, that you have to keep, you have to think about one million, think about it, so surround your thoughts with it, this is your imaginative thinking, and you will obtain it. This is called imaginative thinking. This is the teaching of Scientology. Very dangerous satanic teaching that has penetrated into churches. These kind of churches aren't called churches, shouldn't really be called churches. When they, when they preach that through their imaginative thinking, some kind of material thing or idea becomes real, this means that they're worshippers of Satan because we can use our imaginative thinking only surrounding imperishable riches. We can call the things which do not exist as though they did. And those things are imperishable riches. They're not temporary, but they're eternal. Why should I, why should I think about a million dollars or some kind of car, a table, some kind of job, husband or wife? People say, focus on these things. I have set my goal on this, on this woman. She's going to be mine and she... Uh, and she's going to be mine, he thought. She ended up marrying somebody else. And he believed in this kind of demonic thought. It may work, but not always. But the idea to proclaim, to meditate, to focus on imperishable riches always works. Take a look at how it worked with Abraham. Having been dying as, as a man, he wasn't a man anymore. Sarah, as a woman, was barren. And she was old in age. And in a span of one year, they grew young and they gave birth to a son through whom today we have the people of Israel and the church across the whole face of the earth from every tribe, tribe and tongue whose father is Abraham, under the condition that they focus their imaginative thinking on imperishable riches, which God reveals and which God has promised, and that are contained in the teaching of Jesus Christ, the teaching of baptism, which is the root system of this kingdom. And therefore, Jesus, as a son of man, strove to possess only those values that were contained in the authority of baptisms, water, the Holy Spirit, and fire, realizing that this is the root system from which the kingdom of God is called to grow in man. When Moses first came to the mountain of God called Horeb and found out that the God of his father is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob is the God of fire, he trembled and dared not, dared not look. Acts chapter 7, verse 32. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. It was in the atmosphere of consuming fire that Israel first saw God on top of Mount Sinai. 
Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. Exodus chapter 24, verses 16 through 17. Obviously, consuming fire can only come from the one who is this fire, according to his original nature. To prove to Israel who God is for them, Moses wrote this into a law that God had offered Israel. This is written in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Thus, in the revelation of his name, fire, God wanted to show Israel the nature of his consuming zeal. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as cool as the grave, its flames are flames of fire and most vehement flame. This he, he is speaking about his jealousy. Songs of Solomon, verses Chapter 8, verse 6. In other words, fire is one of the marvelous names of the Heavenly Father that is covered in darkness, whereas baptism in fire is definition and purposeful action that God performs with the powers contained in the dignity of this name. Daniel, chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I watched them because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the beast, as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him here before him. This is again referring to the Son of God and the dignity of the Son of Man who was brought to the Father. Then to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Ezekiel the prophet, documenting his visions, his encounter with God, also revealed with what kind of God we are entering a covenant with. Then I looked, and there was a likeness like the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his waist and downward, fire, and from his waist and upward, like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. He stretched out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of hair, and the spirit lifted lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. Ezekiel chapter 8 verses 2 through 3. I'm not going to interpret these places of scripture right now of this prophecy, but I want to unveil the name of God in the dignity of fire in the dignity of all-consuming zeal. Therefore, considering who God is according to his nature, the prophet Isaiah asks a legitimate question. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire and everlasting burnings? Isaiah chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. 
The next signs of those people who walk in righteousness and who speak truth, it says that these people uh, despise the gain of oppression, who gesture with, gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed, and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. He will dwell on high, his place of defense will be the fortress of rocks, bread will be given him, his water will be sure. Isaiah chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. When Isaiah directed this question to the inhabitants of Mount Zion, can they dwell with the devouring fire or not? He brought many of these inhabitants to fire, to fear and trembling. Because the majority of the inhabitants of Mount Zion were wicked sinners who mocked the righteous and while doing all kinds of lawlessness, they consider themselves righteous. Not many find the narrow gates, many walk along the wide path, the broad path. They've come to this place, they've come to the mountain of God. And Isaiah saw that, and to him this question was asked, and to them this question was asked, Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Uh, the majority of the inhabitants of Mount Zion were wicked sinners who mocked the righteous, and while doing all kinds of lawlessness, they consider themselves righteous. Furthermore, the prophet says that to dwell in the everlasting burning of the fire, one must walk righteously and speak the truth in his heart. Further characteristics are the result of walking in righteousness, which is our inheritance and calling. The seal of righteousness we receive in baptism. And to be clothed in the strength giving us the ability to practice righteousness, we need to be clothed in the powers that are contained in all three baptisms, water, Holy Spirit, and fire. Being in the flesh, Jesus, as a son of man, experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit after being baptized in water in which John the Baptist baptized him. Thus, baptism in the Holy Spirit opened the possibility for him to be baptized by fire. Regarding this, he once addressed his disciples and said, But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. According to these words, it follows that before we can be clothed in the powers that are contained in baptism and fire, we must drink the cup that Christ drinks so that we can be clothed in baptism and fire. First is the cup and then is fire. He will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. Jesus certainly knew all about the contents of this cup. He knew that in this cup the perfect will of the Father was expressed, which demanded the loss of himself. This was in agreement with the perfect will of the Father, the revelation of the Father, which again demanded the loss of himself and the dissolution of himself in this will. However, when he stood before the need to take this cup, he shuddered and began to grieve and be terrified. What is this cup that can tear out from the mouth of the Son of Man the cry of despair? Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. The acceptance of this cup required consent to the full surrender of life with the complete free will that the Son of Man possessed. The commandment of freedom that the Son of God received from his Father placed him before the sovereign right and authority of the voluntary and informed choice to accept or reject the perfect will of the Father and the cup offered to him. And this choice was made.
Therefore, my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have, command I have received from my Father. John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18. The acceptance of this cup was first called to unveil the, re re the relationship of the Son with the Father, and to show the depth and absoluteness of His obedience to the perfect will of the Father. This is an example of beauty and charm that is shown in the combination of his free will with the voluntary decision to fulfill the will of the Father. We must follow this example. First, for the Son in the acceptance of this cup was hidden the shameful cross, agony of torment and complete loneliness and abandonment by the Father. Second, the acceptance of this cup served as evidence before God of complete readiness to meet all of the requirements of the prayer offering for the offering of oneself to God as a sweet-smelling aroma. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us and offering the sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling sweet aroma. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1-2. Throughout all of Scripture, if a burnt sacrifice met the requirements of a sweet-smelling aroma expressed in total dedication and total sanctification produced in accordance with the established commandments, then the fire of God came upon it. The dissension of such a fire referred to the baptism in fire in which a person was clothed in the powers of the Heavenly Father. This was not a lot in Scripture. We know that when Abel and Cain had brought a sacrifice, they did not... Uh, they do not wait for when God would come upon the sacrifice with the fire. And this, if this sacrifice, oh, I apologize, they did wait for the fire. And fire came upon one of their sacrifices. Fire came upon the sacrifice of Abraham, as we know. And we know that at one point, when uh, God had revealed to the parents of Samson that they would have a son who would be a male, he would be a Nazarene from the womb of his mother, and they, not knowing that this is an angel of God in whom he was sent by, they thought that this was simply a man of God, a prophet. And they said, allow us, allow us to go and bring you something to eat. Don't leave. And I'm going to call uh, my husband, she says, so that he can also hear you. Because angel came to the wife. And uh, they brought him something to eat, and they asked him, I ask you to eat. He says, no, I am not going to eat. And they said, what is your name? He said, why do you ask him my name? It is, it is a mystery. I can't reveal it to you now, he says, but if you want to bring a sacrifice to the Lord, then pour it out on this rock. Then they poured it out. He touched it with the rod. Fire came out. And in this fire, he had lifted up and disappeared. Uh, they said, we have truly seen God and we shall die. But then the woman said, if God had wanted to kill us, would he have revealed this truth to us? So what I want to tell you is, this was the manifestation of fire there where there was total dedication and total sanctification. By having gone through fire baptism in which the Son of God was clothed in the powers of his Father, he could say, I am alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. It should be noted that in the death of the Son of God on the cross, as a son of man, there are two different sides. 
On the contrary, it was desired and it carried and helped him when he was faced with the other side. The other side that scared him was where the father not only loved him, but also hid his face from him like from personified sin, alien, unacceptable and hostile to himself. He also condemned this sin by throwing it into the darkest and most terrible depths of the underworld. You see, there were two sides there. There, where he brought himself as a sweet-smelling aroma, he wanted this, he desired this, and he rejoiced. And in the sacrifice, when the fire clothed this sacrifice, he was satisfied because this was him uniting with his father. Full, total dedication in agreement with the perfect will of the Father. But the other side of this scared him. And the first side helped him accept this second side or the other side. And so for us to accept the cup that we must drink from in order to receive the ability to be clothed and the powers are contained in fire baptism, like Christ, total dedication and total sanctification must be present. However, the shameful cross, agony of mortal torment, complete loneliness and abandonment by the Father will be absent. Because the shameful cross, agony of mortal torment, complete loneliness and abandonment by the Father was our natural state before our conversion to God. We already had dwelled in this before we were born of God. And to rest us from this torment of death, the Son of God on the shameful cross exchanged with us His nature and took upon Himself the nature of our sin while clothing us in His holiness. Of course, due to the fact that we were in the body, we could not understand and feel the state of our spirit outside of God to the end. No one feels this horror that Christ had felt on the cross. People are found in this kind of horror, but they don't feel it. Thanks to the fact that these are spiritual things, but people are in the body, and to feel spiritual things in the body is practically impossible. The ability to not understand and comprehend our disastrous condition is successfully used by the seducer. That's why many who come to God will end up in perdition. Because they will walk not by faith expressed in the reigning teaching of Jesus Christ and dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit, but in union with demonic knowledge and the capabilities of their own intellect. Therefore, the Holy Spirit in the Trinity of the Baptisms is called to realize the perfect will of the Father with the participation of man, and in doing so, he must not violate this man's sovereign right to choose. The trials that will endure is neither the cup nor the baptisms, but the ability to be cleansed of every foreign impurity and the ability to be affirmed in God. Approaching baptism, we must already be cleansed and sanctified. To Abraham, he was already sanctified when he, when he was circumcised. Therefore, having accepted baptism, we must already be righteous, be cleansed, be righteous and cleansed in faith, not based on our works, but what Christ had done on the cross. Therefore, Trials are going to be given to us as the ability to be cleansed of every foreign impurity and to be ability to be affirmed in God. 
When we approach our inheritance that is contained in the powers of baptism, then Scripture says that this is not washing ourselves of carnal impurity, but a seal of righteousness that already exists in us. Therefore, the acceptance of the cup is acceptance of total dedication and total sanctification, so that we can present ourselves as a burning sacrifice to God in order to be a sweet-smelling aroma. This must... This might... This is the ability for us to meet the Father. And many saints, they don't truly know who the Father is. They don't know. They say, I, I can't. I can judge him according to my own biological Father. I know many things are said of Christ, the Holy Spirit, but the Father, who is the Father? But in the baptism of fire, we can meet with this person of the Father because in each of the baptisms, God reveals a certain, uh, his certain person through certain functions. Therefore, baptism in fire, on one hand, is God's acceptance of our total dedication, and on the other hand, it is our coronation in Christ. For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Mark chapter 9, verse 49. A sacrifice that is brought according to the statute, also, it was always seasoned with fire. Here it says, for everyone will be seasoned with fire. To be seasoned with fire means to be separated by fire. Therefore, the cup will be given to us as an opportunity to realize the reciprocal love of God and thanks to our love for Him that we demonstrated through our total dedication and sanctification to Him. Baptism, including baptism in fire, is evidence for us that God has accepted our sanctification and dedication. And as we know, the process of sanctification and dedication itself will be met with trials of great waters. So, don't be afraid of the cup. Uh, the perfect will is revealed in the cup, what is expressed in, and how we must dedicate ourselves, how we must sanctify ourselves. And when we draw near to this, to this cup, then we are met with the great waters. As it is written in Songs of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 7, many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. In this case, our dedication to be a burning sacrifice that is called to attract the favor of God in the fire descending upon this sacrifice is the result of our love toward God and His perfect will. The great waters is a challenge to this love from the organized powers of darkness that try to diminish the fire of this love toward God in the face of the world that lies in evil, our own flesh, wicked people, and demonic influence that inspires these evil powers. From this it follows that the contents of the cup that we are called to drink, so that the path to the powers contained in baptism and fire can be revealed, are the contents of our blessed fate from God which causes an inadequate reaction from our enemy. In one of the images that unveils the love of man toward God expressed in readiness to be a burning sacrifice founded on hearing and fulfilling the teaching of Christ, a person is portrayed like a house built on a rock. The rain descended and the floods came, but the house did not fall because it was founded on the chief cornerstone known as the reigning teaching of Christ. 
Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. It did not fall, but was founded on the rock. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 25. If you've accepted this cup, then nothing is going to be able to stand in your way any longer because you have seen the perfect will of the Father and you are going to be victorious. We could continue the list of images revealing both the contents of the cup and the willingness to accept this cup to draw upon ourselves the favor of God in the descent of His fire on this readiness and dedication. For example, Apostle Paul expressing the idea about the acceptance of the cup says that it is God who allows the organized powers of darkness to resist and challenge our readiness to drink the cup offered by him for one purpose, to affirm us in the acceptance of this cup so that we can be made unshakable. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26, But now he is promising that once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Thus, to be clothed in fire baptism, to be immersed in fire baptism, and to be separated through fire baptism, or to be partaking to God and His throne through fire baptism, means to draw the favor of God upon ourselves. God's favor is usually expressed in His fire. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2. The verb to look means immerse in fire, separate by fire, clothe by fire. Only a contrite spirit can result in a sweet-smelling aroma when it touches fire, and only in true contrition can we comprehend the powers contained in fire baptism and knowledge the goodness that is found in it. The finely crushed incense in the golden censer began to produce incense only at the moment when coals were poured into the golden censer from the altar of burnt offerings. And these coals was the fire of God from, from heaven. Therefore, when God's fire had touched the crushed incense, only then did it begin to produce aroma. In Scripture, such contrition leads a person's spirit to a state of poverty, which practically becomes the food for the fire. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke about the properties of contrition, or rather the poverty of the human spirit as a certain condition that could give God the opportunity to address his favor to man expressed in the powers of fire baptism. A contrite spirit, according to the words of Christ, is a poor spirit that draws fire upon itself and becomes food for the fire, or rather becomes the owner of the kingdom of heaven. And so, a component of the cup preparing us for baptism in fire is the price for having a poor spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here we are going to be met. So in this poor state, until a person has become impoverished, until he has allowed God the opportunity to, to produce contrition in his spirit, God can't use this kind of aroma. And according to these words, poverty of the spirit is complete dependence on God that is expressed in complete dependence on the hope of our calling, which is in the reigning teaching of Christ and on the power of the Holy Spirit who fills this teaching with himself. 
Therefore, poverty of the spirit on one hand is the result of death to sin or complete freedom from sin, and on the other hand, it is the result of complete dependence on dedication to God. Poverty of the spirit is the authority and power to enter by the narrow gate in order to inherit eternal life in the subject of the kingdom of heaven. And to obtain this kind of state in our spirit, it is necessary to acknowledge the powers contained in fire baptism. Otherwise, we will not be stimulated to pay the price for the ability to accept the cup with the price of our life. If we don't know what powers these are, what privilege is contained in them, what the reward is contained in it, we will not pay a price. Moses had paid a price having given up the throne only because he had acknowledged the reward. He had refused to be called the son or daughter of Pharaoh and had decided to suffer with the people of God. And the suffering he accepted as, as, a ri as riches because he knew the reward. He understood the reward. Therefore, if a person is not aware of the reward, what is contained in fire baptism, he's never going to pay the price of his whole life. He's never going to drink this cup. He is going to call the cup something completely different. He calls he call it a suffering and so forth, as it is sung in Psalms. This person will not acknowledge. When people use their imaginative thinking and they want to focus and surround their thinking around these one million dollars, they are walking around these, these thorns. Thorns, this thorns or brambles are not sufferings with Christ, but they're being led by earthly riches. When we try to, with our imaginative thinking, we try to meditate things that are material so that we can bring them to fulfillment, so that we can bring them to, to reality. And this, we know, is incorrect thinking. The second component of the cup preparing us for baptism in fire is the ability to express our cries before God in mourning. This whole, this whole fifth chapter in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount talks about us preparing ourselves for the cup so that we can see what this cup is and what baptism in fire is. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. As we had uh, read, ask for the where all the old way is and walk in it. Therefore, you will find rest for your souls. So comfort, rest, these are synonyms. This is one and the same thing. You are going to be comforted the whole world mourns, but they won't receive comfort. Many people also cry. A person, even cry for the first time, when he is born, he enters into this world crying. All the doctors know this, that when a child is born, a cry is a good sign. So blessed are those who mourn. These are not tears of self-pity or resentment and defeat. They are tears of tenderness and sorrow, tears of supplication and compassion, followed by consolation or divine peace. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9 says of Christ, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
So sufferings are necessary, they were necessary for the son so that he can be perfected through these sufferings. This kind of supplications expressed in tears is the desire and readiness to accept the fate from God in the cup which contains our glory in Christ and our calling in God. So when a person is able to, to cry with tears of sorrow, tears of joy, when he cries and when he asks God to save him from, from, from death, some say we shouldn't pray about this, we are already saved. Yes, we are saved, but death still comes upon us. And Christ had taught, pray, our Father, deliver us from temptation. This is an image for us. Third, the third component of the cup preparing us for baptism in fire is being clothed in meekness that coincides with the spirit of Christ. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 5. As much as we know, meekness is a state expressed in a bridled tongue that cooperates with the strength and power of the Holy Spirit. To inherit the earth is to enter into the inheritance of the Nairobi or to accept the kingdom of heaven that is contained in the reigning teaching of Christ, which in practice means to become the kingdom of heaven. Each person is a territory of the kingdom of heaven on earth under the condition that he has accepted the powers of baptism. A meek spirit is the spirit of Christ that is ready and able to accept his calling in the cup of the Lord expressed in his total sanctification and dedication. Romans chapter 8 verses 9 through 10 says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. When we're talking about who does not, he who does not have the Spirit of Christ, we're not talking about baptism in the Holy Spirit, and we're not talking about the Holy Spirit, but we are talking about a meek state. The Spirit of Christ is this state of meekness, the ability to bridle ourselves and to speak only that which God says and to not say something in addition, a meek spirit is a spirit that is quiet, not evil, and capable of restraining itself in such a way as to be obedient to death and death on the cross. A meek tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Proverbs 15.4 If a person is not taught meekness, and again, it can be taught, it must be taught, Christ said, learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart. People say, Lord, give me humility, give me meekness. A person will never receive meekness because it's never, it's never written for us to pray, Lord, give me love, give me patience. He's not going to give you love or give you patience or meekness. You must give it to him and not him to you. It is you. You must be taught meekness and how to bridle your lips. For this you are given the teaching and the Holy Spirit, so that you can please God. And if a person is not taught, he will never be able to understand or accept the cup offered to him, which contains the perfect will of the Father, expressed in total sanctification and dedication. And consequently, he will not be able to accept baptism in fire, which could be clothed, which he could be clothed in, only in the presence of total sanctification and dedication. We have noted on numerous occasions that according to Scripture, the fire of God cannot come upon man who does not meet the requirements of a burnt sacrifice. 
Gather yourselves together, yes, gather together, O undesirable nation, before the decree is issued, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day the Lord's anger comes upon you. Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. This word is directed to the people of God, not to this world. The fourth component of the cup, preparing us for baptism and fire, is hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. This means that the food for this person is the fulfillment of the perfect will of the Father. And so for every person who comes to God, the acceptance of the cup is the acceptance and readiness to fulfill the perfect will of the Father. Just as baptism in the Holy Spirit was given to only those who desired it, he who thirsts, come to me and drink. When this kind of meaningful hunger and zeal to be baptized in fire comes in our heart, the same hunger and zeal that we had to have to endure baptism in the Holy Spirit, this will mean that we have accepted the cup and brought ourselves to a state of readiness to be a burnt sacrifice, which will allow the Holy Spirit to fill us in fire and immerse us into the Father, thanks to which we will encounter the powers contained in baptism in fire. The fifth component of the cup, preparing us for baptism in fire, is the ability to have mercy upon those whom God has mercy upon. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. We need to understand that the mercy of God coming from the love of God agape is selective. These are the contents of the cup that we will need to drink from in order to give the Holy Spirit the opportunity to clothe us in the fire of the Heavenly Father. No one can deny that according to Scripture, the category of people that is the object of God's love will be saved, and the category of people that is the object of God's anger will perish. And if for today God spares the vessels of anger, then this is not a manifestation of his mercy in relation to the vessel of anger, of anger, but a manifestation of his power and might with which he observes the law of sowing and reaping. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Romans chapter 9, verses 22 through 24. We know that because Saul spared King Agag of Amalek, God rejected him and put him to death. He found David for himself, a better man after his own heart, who fulfilled all his desires because he showed mercy to the vessels of mercy and poured out anger upon the vessels of anger. Thus, our mercy should only be directed to the vessels of mercy. If our mercy is directed to the vessels of anger who are enemies of his will and do not honor his grace, this mercy will be seen as evil and resistance to God. Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, verses 20 through 23, well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty with fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they did not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. 
to accept the cup is to prepare ourselves to fulfill the perfect will of the Father comprised of pouring out light on the just and the unjust and pouring out as rain on the just and on the unjust. And we know that the interpretation to love everyone and to be a, to love everybody is, is not true because it's taken out of context from other places of Scripture. Take a look at how we must, what kind of clouds we must be and what kind of rain we must pour out. How God pours out this rain on the just and on the unjust. Job chapter 37 verses 11 to 13. Also with moisture he saturates the thick clouds. He scatters his bright clouds and they swirl about, being dirt by his guidance. Here we see this rain and this light. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Who sends, who sends his son on the just on the just and rain on the just on the just and you therefore must be perfect. Here it says, this is revealed how we can do so. He, the, the clouds, they swirl about being turned by his guidance that they may do whatever he commands them on the face of the whole earth. He causes it to come whether for correction or for his land or for mercy. You see, selective, these rains are selective. For some, they are a blessing, for others, a curse. For some, the sun is a blessing, and for others, it's a curse. The Sahara Desert, where there is a strong, scorching sun, there is almost no life there. It's a curse. And take a look at those places where there are an oasis. The sun shines, but there's also rain in due time. And the land is, is flourishing. There's a difference between the sun in different areas and between an oasis and the desert. And the scorching sun is the anger of God. If we are not familiar with this position or words, we do not agree with this position. This means that we have drank from another cup that we accepted from the hands of the great harlot called Babylon, who portrays herself as the bride of the Lamb. The sixth component of the cup, preparing us for baptism in fire, is a payment for the price of having a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. A pure heart is a heart that is free from resentment, suspicion, arrogance, and haughtiness which means that it is free from all that is in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In other words, a pure heart is a good heart that is cleansed from dead works for service to the living and true God. To offer oneself as a birth sacrifice, it is necessary to have a pure heart, to dedicate ourselves to God without first having our conscience cleansed from dead works, is to sacrifice something insulting to God like a pig. But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Matthew chapter 13, verse 23. It's written, He who hears and understands. They have eyes, but they sometimes might not understand. That's what's written in the book of Isaiah as well. Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We're talking about if the heart is not cleansed, 
A person is going to speak, I will say or say to you, I love you. But in these words, I love you, there is going to be stiffness and hatred because he has envy and he despises you. But he understands that he has to say, I love you, and he is lying to himself and he is lying to you. And you, from this I love you, feel ice cold in your heart. And you don't understand what's going on with you. A person says, I love you, but pushes pushes you away. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. An idle word is when we proclaim that which is not in our heart. We must proclaim the faith of our heart. But when a person does not have faith, and he says, this is mine, I am taking this, this is mine, but this is not there, this is called an idle word. When he says, I love you, but himself despises you, has envy, and wishes evil against you, this is an idle word that he speaks. Turn to one another and say, I love you. I call these people degenerates. How can you sit in a church and say, turn to one another and everyone say, I love you, and put your hands on one another? Have you become priests for one another all of a sudden? This isn't written anywhere in Scripture. Never had the apostle turned to the church in Scripture with these words, ending their message. Never did they say, now when you read this, this, this letter, this word, lay your hands on one another and say, I love you, or Jesus loves you. I say to this, I know even without you that Jesus loves me and I don't need any your, I don't need you to lay hands on me, nor do I ever want to be near you even in the bathroom. When the wicked, they, they fill the mountains of Zion, what, what, what to do? God is going to separate them. He is going to send his angels and angels will begin to bind these wicked people and and, uh, and cleanse the church of these kind of people. The seventh component of the cup preparing us for baptism and fire is the ability to practice the peace of Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. A person who practices peace is a person who does not accept the reproaches against his neighbor, does not walk like an earpiece among the people of God, and does not reveal the secrets of his neighbor. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 28, a perverse man sows strife, and a whisperer separates the best of friends. Never, or never, never spread any kind of negativity against another person. Never spread it, and you will be a peacemaker. If you've heard something, never say, you know, this person said this and this about you. Never say this. And if you are wise, this person who has said something bad and say, does this person not have anything good in him? And because this person is uh, resentful, he's going to say, no, I can't find anything. And then you yourself find something good and, and mention it. Go to the other person and then say, you know, this person said about you that you are a good person. He's going to say, that, that can't be. He, I only hear negativity against him. 
a negativity from him. And he's, they're going to look at one another and they're going to look at the good in one another. These are people of peace. All of us make mistakes, but each of us are individual, individuals. And many things might seem to us as, as strange. We are individuals and people have different tastes. Someone might like somebody with red hair, someone might like somebody who is brunette. That's not, that's not a bad thing. I remember one brother said, I hate redheads, I was never going to marry a redhead. He did end up marrying a redhead, and to this day he is married to a redhead. Because the thing wasn't in redheads, but it was in, it was in the character, and all of a sudden he met a redhead who captured him. Whom he was captivated by. Eighth component of the cup, preparing us for baptism and fire, is the ability to feel bliss when being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5:10. When the first time the apostles were ashamed when they were when they were beat, take a look at what they had said. Acts chapter 5, verses 40 to 41. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I usually say, imagine today, if somebody would be called out in the Senate or the Congress, if he would be ashamed for his faith, they would say, you have a constitution, you're going against the constitution, we have a right to a freedom of, of speech, or so forth. But we would find attorneys, or so forth, but here they said, they simply rejoiced, or when the council had judged them, they didn't go to complain or to search for help somewhere. They simply rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame. Turns out that not even everyone will have the opportunity to rejoice for this truth. This is an exception to the rule when a person, uh, a person rejoices. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been given grant on the behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Philippians chapter 1, verse 28, and when a person begins to see this as, as, as worthy, that he has finally heard this persecution in his address, in his name, persecution, whatever he might do, and he is being judged, and, and all of a sudden he rejoices. He didn't search for the truth, he didn't uh, grow angry, but he rejoiced. Then know that you have drawn near to the powers that are contained in baptism and fire. The next part, if God gives us the opportunity, we are going to study on Sunday. And now let us bend our knees and bow our heads and let us pray, given that our time has come to an end. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mighty word, the word about the kingdom, for your teaching, which, in which you favor to dwell, your perfect favor to show us, your perfect will. In this teaching is contained the cup that you offer to us. The contents of this cup that you offer to your people so that they can be sanctified 
and dedicate themselves to the fulfillment of your perfect will. You want your children to coincide with your requirements and your standards so that they can be just as you were in your life. And despite the fact that many yell and say that this is impossible, you have said that there is nothing impossible for you. And for this, you have prepared for us an imperishable riches in the subject of baptism in water, Holy Spirit, and fire, so that we, having been immersed in these baptisms, could have you, so that we could be delivered from our vain nature, from our pride, from our, all fears, from all phobias, doubts, so that we could become true righteous men who are like lions and who are not afraid of anybody. May your mercy be blessed for your holy people, and may illnesses be cursed before your countenance forever and ever. When we accept this cup, and in this cup, in this perfect will, he is going to feel full healing from every form of fear. Every virus in his body will die. And, is going to, and your life is going to, to act and act abundantly because your baptisms are given for one purpose, to produce your resurrection in your life so that we can walk in a renewed life. We can't walk in a renewed life if we are not clothed in the trinity of these baptisms. May the seed of your nation be blessed, and may the heart of your people be blessed. May their soil be prepared in order to accept this word and to water it, to take care of it like a precious pearl, to pay a price of everything for it so that this pearl could become our property, so that we could become your kingdom. And so that in this kingdom you can perfect your great works. We thank you and we worship you. May your glory be blessed for your nation. May, it be protect, may your nation be protective and may they be comforted. You have said that when we find this path, we are going to truly come to rest. We are going to arrive to comfort. Today, many of your children are not in rest. They are in search, they are in captivity of sin, captivity of illnesses, captivity of darkness, captivity of those leaders whom they have chosen for themselves. Open their eyes, enlighten them, so that they could see your light, and they could leave their blind leaders and not follow them any longer. Because if the blind lead the blind, you have said that they both are going to end up in the pit. They're not going to come to your kingdom. They're not going to bring either themselves or those who they are leading into the kingdom. Because they are not familiar with your kingdom. They are not familiar with the teaching of your kingdom. May your nation be blessed. Open the eyes of your inheritance, for you have said that you have come so that the blind can see and they see and those many have refused to be taught your order. And we thank you for this service that we have, for the Holy Spirit, for the Word, for one another, and we bow down before you, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from the hand of the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And now, let us all together proclaim our unchanging manifestation. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.